Good evening, everyone. It's a joy and blessing to have the elders Q&A tonight. Um, you know, this is one of the avenues for us that we could see what's in the hearts of um, our elders and for them to see what's in your hearts as you have provided the questions. And so I just want to, before we begin, let me just read Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Him we, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And praise God that God has called Pastor Mark, uh, Ted, and Kevin to be the elders of our church. And they're here to exhort and teach us to shepherd our hearts with God's word for tonight. So are you ready for the Q&A? Okay, all right. Before we begin, I'll open this up in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for you are good and faithful. We thank you for calling men, um, shepherds in the local church, whom you can use, Lord, for us to be shepherded by your word. Lord, we pray, may we have humble hearts as we listen uh, from our elders. May you please direct us, Lord, and help us with all the questions that we've asked. Help us, Lord, for our church to grow in maturity in Christ, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last Sunday, we had the topic of divorce from Matthew chapter 5, 31 to 32, and then in Cornerstone, we talked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So, for our first two questions, it's about marriage and dating, so I'm going to start here, as men, what would you consider serious red flags in a man when, when a woman is considering a relationship or marriage? As married men, what do you think is important for men to consider as they pursue a woman? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Yeah. And so... Uh... Kevin and Ted, I'll let you get started. <laughs> I, I have a ton of but, ideas, and I would take up all the time, and I don't want to do it. And that, all, yeah, that's there, an awesome question. There's also like a second question here. Uh, if you are not doing spiritually well, should you be in or continue in a dating relationship? So they're kind of like related too. Yeah, the so. second one's easy, no. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so for the first question, yeah. I guess I'll get started. Um, I guess I think the first part of that first question was uh, red flags in guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Well, I, I think one of the one clear one pornography usage. Mm-hmm. I think that's always going to be a red flag um, because you know you bring that into a relationship that's ostensibly supposed to be heading towards marriage. You're bringing that in, right? Yeah. So that's Big red flag. Um, I would say another thing, and, and honestly, probably the most the biggest thing is um, unwillingness to receive counsel. Because mm. um, I, I mean, 
a lot of guys are young, immature. Yeah. Um, but if they're in a place where they're responding to God's word and responding to the counsel of older, godly, wise men, then they can grow. But if there's an unwillingness and a stubbornness and a resistance to that, then it kind of shows that um, the state of their heart and where there's where, where there's at. So, yeah, I think there's can be varying levels of immaturity, and I think that's you know fairly common. But at the same time, if someone is willing to respond to the counsel given to them, um, I think you know that there's hope there. Yeah. Uh, was it remind me of the second part of the question? Oh yeah, if you are not doing well spiritually, should you be in or continue in a dating relationship? Pastor Mark already. Yeah, wasn't there a, wasn't there like a second part to the first question? I think it was a. Think from the other perspective. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. As married men, oh, yeah. What do you think is important for men to consider as they pursue right. a woman? Yeah, I think I think scriptures um, kind of give us some priorities. Proverbs thirty-one: um, Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is worthy to be praised. So, but you know, I think unfortunately, a lot of men, the order is. They, they put beauty first they, and then... <laughs> let, let's check off the beauty and the charm first, right? And then we'll make sure that the other things are there. So, you know, I, I think, right. you know, when it comes down to it, marriage, two sinners getting together. There's going to be difficulties, there's going to be conflict, even just circumstances being brought in that are going to be challenging to you. And, you know, your wife's pretty face is not going to, you know, get us through those things. It's really a commitment to the Lord and a commitment. You know, Joanna and I always say that, you know, we don't always agree on things. Um, there are conflicts and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're both on the same team, you know, because we both desire to do what God pleases. And even though at any moment in time, my priority may be, oh, what does Kevin want? And for her, maybe what Joanna wants. But at the end of the day, we both know that if we truly desire what the Lord wants, we can get through it. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Good answer, Kevin. I'll just add, just briefly, I agree. Um, I think one that may be sort of not so obvious, but I think will come up from time to time is uh, for men, you know, this idea of selfish ambition and sort of pursuing your own goals and your ambitions in life. And that can come up in, in different contexts, whether it's work or whether it's even hobbies, uh, in relationships. Um, but it's one of those respectable sins which really undermines the authority of Christ and his lordship over our lives. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think that's not always easy to see from the outside perspective. Um, but, you know, seeing how decisions are made, how Kevin said, you know, how counsel is received, correction is received, all those things point to, you know, whether Christ is really, really, truly the Lord of this individual's life. Um, and so, you know, again, this isn't, when we think about these things, it's really, as been mentioned many times before, it's not about perfection. You know, it's about the direction of this individual's life. Is this person have a pattern of submitting themselves under Christ and his word? Um, and they may not, you know, start off all nice and aligned, but, you know, as you're getting to know this individual or as you, 
you know, as this person continues to, to grow, do you see that those selfish ambitions are being put to death? And is Christ really reigning in their lives as, as supreme? And so um, I think that could be destructive to a relationship, you know, because at the end of the day, is this individual um, seeking God's glory or their own, right? And, and that really gets to the heart of the issue. Thank you, Ted. Pastor Mark? Yeah, great answer. Um, when you go to Ephesians 4 and 5, and, and I was talking with Jerome and Kevin about this, you know, we have such a good and great Savior. He is so wonderful. And ladies, I know we live in a world, and Christ really understands this, where women get the short end of the stick. Okay, that's because of sin. It's because men take advantage of their leverage and power in this world. And so women in dating, marriage, and all of these things, on the one hand, you come in with the short end of the stick. It's guys who are supposed to pursue. It's guys who are supposed to ask. You guys are waiting. And it's hard in all of those ways. But when you go through scripture, the Lord makes it clear he is the protector and the caregiver and the shepherd of those who are in vulnerable positions. And so I would say to the ladies, since it's mostly the ladies who cheered tonight, and most of the ladies with great enthusiasm who, who bring these questions, um, for you, one of your protections for you is for you to walk well with Christ and for you to be in Ephesians 4, one, one of the things he talks about in Ephesians 4 and then Ephesians 5 is that we would be submitted to one another. That's something that both of these men have alluded to. Is, is this a person who is submitted to Christ, right? And red flags are going to come up if someone's not submitted to Christ. Selfish ambition is one example. Uh, an addiction to pornography, that's another addition. You know, it's not just a purity. It is purity. But are they, do their lives really belong to Christ? And you can get deceived in the church because guys cover it up by serving big. Okay? They, they, you know, go to seminary. They serve in countless different ways. They'll do any number of different things that look externally like they're big givers, they're big participants, they do A, B, C, D, and E. But nowhere in Scripture, as we were told in seminary, Dr. Busnitz used to say, there's nowhere in scripture that says thou shalt go to seminary or that you're any better than anybody else because you serve in A, B, C, D, or E ministry or because you're a pastor. So you can be deceived in those ways. The real issue that you're looking for are what are the red flags that show this person doesn't have a vital relationship with Christ, right? And when you go to the scriptures, pride is one of the big ones. This is what these guys are talking about. Selfish ambition. Is this person a prideful person? And pride can masquerade as humility, right? There's plenty of guys who do it. How do you know? So one of the helpful things really for you to start with the ladies is, are you submitted to Christ? If you're submitted to Christ and you have a vital relationship with Christ, you're going to be able to sniff out red flags a mile away. You're going to be able to sniff out selfish ambition a mile away, okay? One of the ways in which I bonded with Julie, our first date, was she had shared with me, okay, through ministry, through parachurch, 
you know, really how Christ had held her fast through that. And through those times and seasons, what became clear and apparent was, I didn't know a whole lot about Julie, but what I did know was, she was in these ministries and she was persisting not because of men, but because of Jesus. Because in many of those ministries, it had turned out poorly for her, not to her advantage. But she persisted out of a love for Christ. When no one was looking, when there was no big payoff, when it wasn't great. And so for you, being submitted to Christ, you're going to be able to see those things clearly because blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to be able to see the Lord. The other aspect is to seek counsel from godly people who are older and wiser than you. Okay, because they see people and they see it from a different perspective or maybe they've seen the entirety and they're able to speak the truth and say, I just, it's like I shared my sermon a while ago, like my mom, where certain people are able to say, I'm a little concerned. When I was at Grace Community Church, I was beginning a dating relationship. One of the pastors saw me with this young lady. It was at the very beginning and he pulled me aside and said, Mark, are you with that young lady? I said, yeah, I am. And he said, not for you. And I knew him, and we had had a long relationship together. I knew he loved me, okay? And I didn't look at it as, this is an imposition, you know, whatever. That was all he needed to say. And then I, I did say, hey, you know, what are the concerns? He said, there's just a pattern, and I don't think it's a good fit for the direction of where you're going, right? Summation. And for me, at that stage, I'd made enough mistakes and blown it enough and being wise in my own eyes, and I love this man, and said, hey, if he's saying it and he sees it, even if I don't see it, I really want to be submitted and listen because through many counselors comes victory. And that doesn't mean you go shopping for the counselor who's finally going to say, this is the good one for you. It's, we're going to honor the shepherding and leadership of godly people, and we're going to hear what they have to say. And in the bigger picture, that's going to be one of the best protections for you. But selfish ambition, pride, uh, the absence of repentance and faith. If someone is not going to be willing to own their mistakes or their errors, if they start to blame shift, it ain't going to change once you get married, right? You know, are, are they really, and, and that's going to take some time. And the flip side of selfish ambition is sloth. When you go through Proverbs, ladies, it's helpful to read through Proverbs and see what a godly man is supposed to be, 1 through 30, and then 31, we come for the ladies, right? But 1 through 30. But sloth is the other side of selfish ambition, if someone is not able to pursue a vital relationship with Christ, they, they cannot privately be in prayer. They cannot privately, faithfully pursue and love Christ. They cannot privately put it together. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean we don't care for them. Okay? But are they really in a position to protect you and lay their lives on the line? Sloth is the other side of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is all the hard work you do to promote yourself and get you what you want, and you're going to take advantage of people, including your wife. Sloth is, I'm taking care of myself too. I'm just doing nothing, and I do whatever I want. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. That willfulness, that refusal to submit to anyone, leadership, and ultimately Christ, 
And as a result, that is going to be a relationship that's not going to draw you closer to Christ. You will continue to grow, but it's going to be one that's going to continually put stumbling blocks in your way. And your heart's desire from this relationship is, is this relationship and is this walk with this man, if we walk together, is it going to be one where we are walking closer and closer and closer to Christ? And, and the second question that got brought up, if someone's not doing well spiritually, should they be in a dating relationship? Very simply, I think we're all agreed. What's more important, my relationship with Christ or my dating relationship? Right? It's obvious, right? We would say that. And so we would say, hey, buddy, man, if you can't take care of and love someone else without Jesus, right? Where are you going to go? Okay, you need that walking well with Christ if you're truly going to love someone in a way that exalts them, edifies them, and encourages them and protects them. Beyond that, basically what you're doing is unloving because you're bringing your mess into someone else's life. Thank you, Pastor Mark, Ted, and Kevin. Um, Yeah, those are excellent answers. And I think, oh, thank you, Pastor Mark, for sharing your past experience about uh, submitting to Christ, and which means submitting to the pastor who pulled you aside, lovingly told you that, hey, this dating relationship is not good. Uh, speaking of... Can I just add? Yes. That's why, ladies, it is helpful if someone's asking you out to go to the shepherds who are over them, their discipleship group leaders, and say, hey, so-and-so asked me out. I just wanted to find out from you. Do you see it? I used to do this with Kurt Gephardt. I used to do it with Rick Holland. You know, hey, and one of the things that you want to know is, you know, have they submitted to your shepherding? Or are they unruly? Or are they like the mule or the donkey who has to be led with a bit? Do they push back all the time? Okay, we're a church. We're a community. It's not a breach of confidentiality. We all know where things are at. And you have that opportunity to hear from the men who shepherd them whether these are men who humbly submit when no one else is looking or when it's just a show. Yeah. um, Actually, this is a great segue to my next question, which is about discipleship. I'm glad you brought up the discipleship leader relationship. Um, So someone asked, can you please expand on the idea of discipleship? Most people have a background or understanding or experience of discipleship as regular meeting and learning from spiritually older members. Is this a mere cultural understanding or is there a biblical precedent? What should be our expectation? Sounds good. I'll let you two guys start. Whenever we talk about discipleship, my mind always goes to Matthew 28. Um, so let me just pull that up here and I'll just read it for us. Be guided by the text. Um, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, so certainly the picture that you described of meeting up with someone, 
one-on-one, -on -one, at a coffee shop, going over a book or something like that, that certainly falls within um, the concept of what discipleship can be. But I think that maybe a little bit too narrow of an understanding of discipleship, because ultimately discipleship is not about you meeting up with the person, right? It's really about following Jesus Christ, right? And all the activities in the church that lead to us um, following Christ, I would consider it to be part of the work of discipleship that Christ is doing in our lives. So, you know, even something as simple as speaking a word that directs someone's attention from themselves to Christ is part of that overall work of discipleship. And even this text mentions a few things, like baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Usually when people think of, like, oh, I'm meeting with my disciple, they're not thinking about getting baptized, right? Um, and teaching them to observe, and I want to stress that word observe as well, so you're not just, you know, just meeting up with someone and if you're consistent in meeting up, that means that uh, there, there's discipleship happening. But then there's an active, what's going on with that? Is the life changing? Are we observing the things that Christ taught? So again, always going back to, are we following Christ? And that's really the essence of discipleship. Are we following our Lord and our Savior? And one of the means that Christ provides for that are people in the church. So definitely what you described, meeting up with an older person, having them walk you through those things, that's an aspect of it. But I don't think that's the sum total, the whole of what discipleship is. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Ted? Yeah. You know, I'll add to Matthew 28. You know, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so, um, you know, initially it sounds like imitate me. It's like, oh, it's like Paul suddenly feeling like he's worthy of imitation, you know, in and of himself. No, he's saying, you know, as I follow Christ, follow my example, right? And he says to Timothy, not just follow my teaching, follow my life, but also follow my suffering, right? Every aspect of life, you know, is to be imitated. And so one question for those who are discipling is, is your life worth imitating? Does your life really reflect the Lordship of Christ when they see you, do they see Christ, you know, all the way through, not just compartmentalized to certain church activities and then at work or in family life, it's completely absent of Christ, right? And so this is the calling of all of us is, is as we follow Christ, hopefully our lives, Christ is formed in our lives such that we can say to others, follow me as I follow Christ, not follow me, period. It's follow me as I follow Christ, um, <clears throat> And so what that means also is that, you know, you, you, you know, just like you come to Christ and it's not like you pick and choose what you like about Christ. It's like, it's all of me or nothing, right? Um, it's the same sort of mentality with, with discipleship. You don't come to a discipler and say, well, let me, let me learn from you in certain aspects, but I don't want to receive your correction. I'm encouraged by the way you lead your home, but you know, this other ask, you know, when you try to correct me, you know, I'll, I'll part, discard that. Um, and so really the heart with which we come to Christ is the heart with which we ought to come to our discipleship group leaders. Not that they're perfect, not that they're, they're you know, they are Christ, um, but to the extent they are following Christ, you want to really submit to that and, and follow that. Um, and so, yeah, I think the negative example I think of is, you know, the rich young ruler who comes to Christ. And it seems like on the outside, he's 
looking to be a disciple of Christ. And yet, when Christ confronts him and says, are you willing to leave everything to follow me? He's not able to, right? And so, you know, on the, on the outside, it seems like, well, here's a priming, you know, opportunity to disciple someone. But when push comes to shove, it's really revealed what's inside their hearts. And so, again, it's, it matters the motivation and the reason of why we pursue discipleship. It's not necessarily, well, fix my problems or I have these gaps in my life that, you know, you can hopefully fix, you know. No, it's, I want my life to look more like Christ. And to the extent that you're following Christ, I, wanna, I want to follow you, so. Yeah, well said. And, you know, when you look at that passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it's really important that we hear closely the entire counsel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The disciples are disciples of Jesus Christ. They're not disciples of men. And so you've seen in the history of the church these extremes where it goes from completely legalistic controlling paradigms. Okay, we have to meet up every Friday. We have to meet up at 5.30 in the morning and boom, 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 boom. And then you see the other extremes where it's, hey, hang out and be my friend. But your savior is Jesus Christ, not the elders or pastors of the church. Your father is God the father in heaven. I'm not your father. Okay. And... We just have to be careful a little bit when we talk about our expectations. When you read through the New Testament and you read through the Old Testament, there is a spectrum, okay, externally of external actions of what discipleship externally looks like. But the principles are always the same. That you're learning to observe everything that Christ commanded. Okay, and there's a big danger when it starts to become, well, I do this because Pastor Mark does this, or I do this because Ted does this, or I do this because JC does this. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where people have latched on because of and become fan people of certain relationships or certain people, right? I like John Piper. I like John MacArthur. And then some people have discipleship relationships because they've seen Ted or Kevin or myself three times over the last year, but the other person's only seen them once over the last, you're not really a disciple. These are the real disciples. These are the inner circles, right? And where does the spotlight get taken off of? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? So I think the issue, that here's the bottom line. Your expectation for discipleship is that you should be growing in Christ-likeness and observing all that Christ has commanded. And with Ted and some people, it's going to look different than Kevin or JC. And people in different stages of life, it's going to look different. But the principle and the fruit is always going to be the same. All right, because we're not Christ substitutes. You will be growing in the image of Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is going to continue to abound in your life. Your focus is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why to say, okay, this is what it should look like. We should meet every Friday. Hey, man, that's completely legalistic and man-centered. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up, Pastor Mark, um, because of in the history of church, the spectrum, right? I think some men could take it legalistically, uh, which is related to our next question. Again, another segue. Um, how can we tell when our th- thinking and life is leading towards legalism? What are some tell 
telltale signs and fruit that might show up when we are thinking and living legalistically. Um, I think top of mind right now, Mark's been taking us through the Sermon on the Mount, um, and Christ is directly addressing some of the more legalistic aspects of um, religious life at that time. And you see him repeatedly say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, where he's essentially addressing, okay, here are some legalistic requirements, but this is what I'm, what this is, what the intention and the purpose of those things actually are. So I, I think legalism can come up in many different ways, one of which is if we take the commands of God and we remove them from the purposes and the intentions of God, right? And that's one way that it can creep in. So, you know, I think um, if oftentimes I've heard legalism described as when we try to earn God's favor, you know, with what we do. And if we consider, okay, scripturally, how do, how do we earn God's favor? Or more specifically, who earns God's favor? It's not of us. Our works are like filthy rags before him. So how can we earn God's favor with filthy, filthy rags? But it's really, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. Christ has earned the favor of God by his works. He's the one who has kept the law. And for us, our favor before God is entirely due to Christ achieving that and accomplishing that for us. So, you know, I'm just trying to really boil it down to the fundamentals. Um, we're legalistic when we circumvent Christ, right? So, yes, it's great, good to keep the commandments of God and all these things, but if we find ourselves doing those things and Christ is nowhere in the conversation, not in the picture at all, that's a telltale sign, right? And I think over time that tells in that, what's the fruit of that? Is it this complete, like, burdensome thing for us to obey the commands of God? Because that's not very Christ-like, right? Or does it produce the fruit of Christ-likeness in our lives as we obey the commands of God? Because that's born out of faith and born out of a love for Christ. So it shows up in that, you know, even Christ himself says, like, you know, take my yoke. But what does he say about his yoke? My yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? It's not something that's like this crushing weight of having to keep the law to earn God's favor. So I think over time that bears out too. Um, does it produce more Christ-likeness and being closer to him? Or does it actually keep Christ distant? So those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, I agree. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think of Exodus 20 and just the Ten Commandments that God gave. And if you think about just the context in which those laws were given, it's in the context of, of grace, right? God had just delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and said, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who delivered you and rescued you and brought you out of slavery. Therefore, right, commandment, 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 right? And so what legalism does is it removes who God is, his goodness, his grace from the law, and it just becomes focused on the law and absent of Christ, absent of God's purposes, absent of God's goodness and his grace. And so, <clears throat> you know, just thinking of a couple, of ex maybe just common examples that come up, like 
your daily devotionals, right? Um, yeah, well, many of us struggle, you know, to, to be consistent in that. And, and how do we sort of overcome that? Well, I just got to do it. I just got to do it because I know it's the right thing to do. But where's Christ in that? Where is remembering that he's rescued us out of sin? Where is remembering how good he's been to us? Where is remembering how he's forgiven us of all our sins, past, present, and future? Like, you forget the gospel and it just becomes, well, I just have to do it, right? That's legalism. When you divorce the grace of God from obedience to his law. Now, it doesn't mean that everything we're called to do is easy, but you do it by faith because you love Christ and you love God for what he's already done for us, right? And so another example that we struggle with, you know, Becky and I, is, is parenting. You know, when we call our kids to obey, is it, well, obey because mom and dad says so. Obey because God says so. Yes, it is true, right? I mean, it's God's authority that they should submit to. But if you don't, if we don't remind them of, look, mom and dad love you. You know, God has blessed you so much. And he's saved us from our sins. And so he calls us to trust him when it's hard, when you don't know what the future is. And you, he also calls us to obey him, even when you don't feel like it, even when it's not easy, right? Because of who God is, because of what Christ has done. Legalism takes that and just shoves it aside and just focuses on, well, I just got to do it. I just got to do it. And so it, it, it totally distorts the gospel. That's why the remedy for legalism in scripture, you see it, Paul over and over again says, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, right? And it's, there's no other remedy for that because instinctively our flesh is legalistic. You know, we want to elevate ourselves and make us in a right standing before God on our own efforts. But that undermines the gospel, which says we can't. That's why Christ had to come and, and rescue us. But that doesn't mean that we just discard the law, right? That's the opposite extreme, which is antinomianism, right? Instead, we're called to obey him by faith and in love for what he's done. And so I think one of the ways you can tell is, are you just doing things, let's just say parenting, let's just say reading your scripture, is it just a chore? Is it a burden? Is there a joy in it? Is there a love for Christ? Or do you say, you know, Lord, help me, because it's hard. My kids are really unruly today. But... Help me to walk in the gospel. Help me point them to the gospel, right? Rather than, <clears throat> I know I got to do my reading this morning, but Lord, remind me of how good you've been to me. You know, remind me of your gospel grace and help me by faith to read your word and to, to receive it as your love for me. So I, I think that's one of those things that kind of gets lost. It, it is a focus on the law, but it's because we've sort of pushed Christ out of the picture. Yeah. Well said, Ben. Um, you know, what is the remedy for legalism? It is the word of the cross. That's what the Apostle Paul says. It's the gospel. And it's what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as part of what that does, it unites us with Christ. So it's really time with our Lord and Savior. It's that vital relationship that the gospel brings us into with Christ, which is that great remedy. And when you have that vital relationship and the overflow of your heart is a growing appreciation and love for who Jesus is and what God has done in and through him, that is the light that pushes aside the darkness and doesn't allow 
things like legalism to come in. It does battle with it. It crushes it. And so I would say, very simply, look, most of the New Testament, this is what they're addressing. And so when we ask, how do we know if we're being legalistic or not? It's really, you know, I know I'm a broken record, right? Julie, you know, she tells all the sisters, I'm a one note person. It's all about Christ, right? But it is your vital relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you know. When you're hanging out in the dark, you can't tell whether one person's darker than you or not, right? When you're in the light, suddenly you're able to see. So we're to really walk in the light as he is in the light. But one of the books that's a huge help that's written to address this is the book of Galatians. Simple, just several chapters. You can read it in like 20 to 30 minutes, right? And it walks through because he's addressing legalism in the church. And he starts from the very beginning. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live right? I live by faith in the one who loved me and died for me, right? And, and so we see from the beginning, and then he goes to the end to here are the deeds of the flesh. How do we know as far as whether I'm being legalistic or not? When what's coming out of my heart is bitterness, resentment, anger, I got to read the Bible again today. I got to pray. I got to go and hang out with the elders again and pray. I mean, I got to be there instead of watching the Maple Leafs play tonight in the Golden State Warriors and take texts from missionary friends who are all texting me, asking me from across the world if I'm watching the Warriors right now. And if I'm watching, I got to be with these guys and I got to do, you know, you look at, he, he walks through the deeds of the flesh, enmity, strife, you know, jealousy, all of these different, hey, if that's the outcome, right, you kind of know I ain't doing this for Jesus. And then the other book that's really helpful is the book of James. And you come to James chapter 3 and James chapter 4 because really legalism, I'm complimenting, it's everything that these men say. You know, we squeeze Jesus out of the picture, it becomes all about us. Legalism essentially is selfish ambition. How do I hold it together? How do I make it happen? How do I please God myself? Right? How, how do I be a better pastor? How do I be a better preacher? How do I be a better praise leader? How do I do all blah, 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 blah? How do I do all? It's selfish ambition at the end of the day. What do I need to do to put this together to make this right? My family, my parenting, all of those things. And so when you read James and you walk through and see all the signs of selfish ambition, enmity, strife, conflicts, quarrels are happening. Quarrels are happening in my marriage. Quarrels are happening in my friendship. Quarrels are happening in, among the elders. It's like, hey, Christ brings love. He brings unity. He brings peace. If this is basically what's coming, if Julie and I, hypothetical, okay, if we're button heads about our kids' education or health insurance or these things on a regular basis, and it's coming up over and over and over again that there is conflict and disagreements, I need to time out and say, okay, yeah, but I just want my kids to, be, to have a good Christian education. I just want them to grow up to be responsible people. I just want the best for my kids. Well, listen, if the fruit of this is I'm constantly button heads with my wife over this thing and we're continually walking away in disagreement, 
James tells me somewhere in the mix, there's selfish ambition. Christ has been moved out. This is not coming from Jesus. This is coming from Mark. And then you know. And so, it, guys, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, thank you, men, for just reminding us to embrace Christ and his gospel so that we could walk in the light and not in darkness or in legalism. Speaking of walking in darkness, uh, someone asked, uh, when approaching someone in sin, what are some principles to think about when considering moving to the next step of church discipline? Can I go back to the other question? I'm sorry. Oh, yes. I'm still um, thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. Here's one of the ways I just want to share from my own life, okay? My marriage, my parenting. Any number of times I've had to go to my kids and say, please forgive your father. Okay, I did it last week. I took the kids out to a park somewhere, okay? And I thought, I'm doing Julia, give her a break. Take the kids out, let her have a nap for a half hour. Go dad, right, go out. And I was really crabby with the kids, okay? And, you know, you go through this whole thing, and then I came home and I said, Julia, how did it go? I said, look, I was crabby with the kids. At the dinner table, I said, look, please forgive your father, Okay? His spirit was not right. He was crabby, right? And it's not right before the Lord. Ethan, Joshua, you know, would you guys forgive me, right? I think what helps us is to walk through the gospel as we repent and receive forgiveness from the Lord and realize that there's forgiveness for us. We can't help but want to show grace and forgive others and not walk in legalism rather than it's really living out the forgiveness. It's really going to him. You can tell whether someone has received forgiveness or not. Whether they know Christ, will they forgive? It's there. It happens naturally. And so in my own heart and my life, I'm increasingly, Julie helps me sometimes. She'll look at me and she say, look, you just have that dark countenance. And I know I'm in the flesh. Christ is not in the picture, but frustration and irritability. When we get frustrated and when we get irritable, those are two signs when we go to scripture that say, I'm walking in the flesh, I'm not walking in the spirit. And before it has to become a big blow up and get ugly or whatever, you know, whatever the reason is, even if it's because someone else is sinning, if you are starting to get frustrated and irritated, you know that there's a likelihood you're walking in legalism. Somebody or something is not meeting your expectation and you're frustrated. Okay? And you know you need Jesus and you know you need a lot of him and it's a really good sign of, let me step out here for a minute and let me pray and let me read Ephesians 4 and let me get all the help I can possibly get because my heart is legalistic. And I'm sharing this with you because I know from personal experience, and I live it. And I will want to say in those moments, what, what's gracious about that is as you go along and you see those signs in your own heart, irritability and frustration, you discover that Christ is more than sufficient to take a legalistic heart and turn it into a heart of love and compassion and grace. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Mark. So, um, like I said, uh, so the next question is about uh, when someone is not walking in the light. 
someone is walking in sin. So when approaching someone in sin, or someone who is in sin, what are some principles to think about when considering moving to the next step of church discipline? Maybe it's in the early stage or second stage, but you know, how do you think about that? Yeah, so um, when we're thinking about church discipline, where do we turn, right? We turn to Matthew 18, but I think one thing that we can get wrong or maybe miss out on is starting with Matthew eighteen fifteen, which is where we typically go, like if your brother sins against you. But that's not where, that's not where the passage starts, right? And the question was asking about what principles should we keep in mind. I think Christ actually gives us many principles to keep in mind as we approach, um, you know, Matthew eighteen fifteen. We go to Matthew eighteen one, and just to kind of give you guys the the summary, the blow by blow of that, there are a few principles that stand out from Matthew eighteen. Um, not just leading up to if your brother sins against you, but even after that, um, humility is a key one. Humility in our own hearts. Um, the whole thing started off was when the disciples were arguing about who was greater. That's how this whole conversation got started. That leads to Matthew eighteen fifteen. So that's one aspect of things, uh, keeping humility in our own hearts. A heart that takes sin seriously, right? That's also um, in the mix as well. Um, in Matthew 18, there's also um, a heart that loves God's little children, um, Christ says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, right? And he actually took a child and used the child as an illustration, don't despise God's little ones. Uh, so um, those things come up after, after Matthew 18. You know, there's that parable of the unforgiving servant, right? So that goes back to checking our own hearts and where we're at. Do we come at it from the perspective of someone who's been forgiven, um, who's been given much grace um, as well? Related to that is, um, you know, making sure that uh, we watch ourselves. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So that's in the mix as well. Um, yeah, so those things come to mind. And also, uh, once you do get to Matthew 18.15, there's that repeated phrase, like, if he listens to you, right? So I think that's something that requires some discernment. You know, is a brother listening or not? Is a brother or sister listening? Um, and sometimes that may be difficult to discern, and particularly just in one conversation, uh, but may take some time, you know, as we approach that whole process of should I bring in others at this point or not? But just really having that discernment of, okay, you know, looking for is there the fruit of repentance in this person's life. So those are just some principles. Thank you, Kevin. Ted? Um, agree. You know, I, I think Kevin focused on, you know, how we ourselves should um, consider ourselves when we approach somebody. We should also consider the individual. But if I had to broaden it, you know, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, where there was a sexually, uh, there was a, uh, yeah, a man had, that has his father's wife, right? So his, his mother-in-law uh, and was uh, in a sexually immoral relationship. And 
he calls he actually calls out the church paul does right for how they dealt with with this individual um and he says you know i've already delivered this man to satan for the destruction of the flesh right what's the purpose so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord so his hope is that by disciplining this individual uh, it's not that he would lose his salvation it's that his false profession would be corrected and that somehow God through his spirit would save this individual and bring him to a point of genuine repentance and faith in Christ. And so, yeah, it is in the best interest of the individual to discipline someone who's, you know, uh, self-deceived into thinking he can put on the, the, the name of Christ and yet live contrary to that confession. But then he goes on in verse six and he says, your boasting, talking to the church is not good. Do you know not do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, right? So this idea of leaven leavening the bread, it's this idea that a little sin can contaminate the whole body. What is he referring to? He's talking about the purity of the church, the holiness of the church. He's talking about the, the unity of the church, right? So it's not just on an individual level that we think about church discipline. It's, okay, when I approach this individual, yeah, it's out of love for him. It's in humility, but I really have to consider this is Christ's church. He died for her. He died so that she might be one under his lordship and that they would be one as he is one and that they might be pure and holy as he is holy, right? So that's that's beyond anything one of us individually can do. This is a corporate identity that Christ has brought um, believers into, that we are one as, as a church. And so we're called to help one another, right? Pursue those goals that Christ, and that calling that Christ has for his church, which is purity and unity, right? And church discipline is one of those means to do that. It is to help and restore the individual brother, but in doing that, we are preserving the unity of the body and we are pursuing the holiness of his, his body. So that's something that I don't think we often think about. We always, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than us is what I'm saying, right? But I think it is important to understand that so that when we confront an individual, it's, it's, it's not about us. It's not about us being better to, than the other person, looking down on the individual. It's really about how do I consider the glory of Christ in the church and how can I be a part of restore, restoring this individual because Christ cares about this, the unity of his church and the purity of his church, which is to be a testimony to the world. One of the take-homes from the good words these men have said, and I love Galatians uh, 6, 1 through 4. I think we focus on Matthew 18, we miss out on what Paul's saying in Galatians 6, and you see how he practices church discipline with the Apostle Peter at the beginning in chapter 2, and then you see how he writes how we're to carry it out with others. But I think one of the points that I'm hearing, you guys can tell me if I'm hearing it correctly, is when church discipline is taken out of context and when it's taken away from the love of God or the gospel, it can be abused, right? And, it, and I think when we go first to Hebrews 12, right? And he talks about how a father who loves his child will discipline his child. And so when we look at that, we see discipline is actually a means of grace, 
We don't think of it in that way. Discipline in the Lord's hands is different than what discipline probably was in many of our parents' hands. Okay? And so we've got to see, and when you look at the book of Hebrews, which a lot of Hebrews, that book of Hebrews is really about church discipline. He's coming to people who aren't doing well, and they have hearts of unbelief. They're not going to church anymore. They're not fellowshipping. There's some question of question about whether they're keeping the marriage bed pure. There's all sorts, they're falling apart, they're being persecuted, they're moving away from Christ. You've got this entire book, a lot of it, which is really a correction for the church so they don't lose their salvation. He spends all this time talking about Jesus and how Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is a better high priest, he's able to give us grace and mercy in our time of need, we need to draw near him. Okay, so you have all this about drawing near to Christ, and then you have one portion about discipline. But it is there, and the implication is that discipline is going to be a regular practice of our Father in heaven in our lives. So people get all shocked and say, well, there's another church discipline case again. Well, when you read scripture, it's like, maybe it should be happening more often. How do we not abuse it? Well, these two men have pointed out, we can't take it out of context. Once, like a parent, it's done out of anger, or we take it away from love, and we take it away from the love of Christ, it will be abused, and people will abuse it. So if you have your Bibles, have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says at the beginning, okay, first three chapters, our union with Christ. If we're not united with Christ, discipline's going to be ugly. In the home, wherever you look at it. Four, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he lays a foundation. By church discipline, when something has come up, look, we're not, if we got a buddy who's got a drug problem and we don't say everything and we think everything's fine, we go on for years, what does the world call us? You're an enabler, right? Okay, and we wouldn't do it to someone who we love. Why didn't you tell me earlier? Because I didn't want to get into a conflict. I.e., I, I didn't love you enough. So if we love someone, we're going to talk to them about it if we see a pattern. And I think that's a helpful thing. If we're seeing a pattern that's happening over and over and over again, and we're starting to see not the fruit of the Spirit, but the deeds of the flesh, enmity, conflict, jealousy, selfishness, we're starting to see a trend, right? If we love the person, we're going to seek unity. How are we going to do it if it's of Christ? With humility with gentleness, with patience, bearing one another's burdens. Okay, this is, this is my problem because it's your problem. We're not separate. So we, we think of members, we're all individuals. No, we're one in Christ. They go over that over and over and over again. So if Julie's having a hard time, even if it's something that doesn't matter to me whatsoever, because she's my wife, because we're one flesh, if it's a problem for her, it's a problem for me. Plain and simple. I might not feel it the same way she does, but if she's upset about it, I want to learn about it. I want to understand it. I want to appreciate where this is coming from because we are one flesh. If it's a problem for her, it's a problem for me. 
Church body, we're in the same way. If someone isn't doing well, we're all not doing well. Okay, I might not understand it, but I sure want to understand it and appreciate what's going on because it affects them, it affects me. I should be grieved. Okay, I'm going to let you know what drives me crazy. It drives me crazy when people think it's the elder's responsibility for church discipline and ugliness is happening in the church and everybody's like, well, I'll wait till the elders get back from vacation or I'll wait till whatever or I'll wait. It's like, look, if you love the person, you're going to say something. And if you don't know, then you're going to ask someone. Because in the old days, I used to call Dr. Street and say, okay, Dr. Street, I don't know, man. (laughs) Seems weird to me. Is it weird to you? Right? Because you're worried and concerned. And it's the same way with our kids. If something comes up and I see something with Ethan and Josh for a period of time, I'll go to Julie and say, honey, look, this is what I'm seeing. Am I seeing only a part of it or... Is there, am I missing something? And you come with a spirit of humility, not presuming I know what's going on, not being judgmental. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm not God. But help me understand, right? Spirit of gentleness, spirit of humility. And then you go on in Ephesians 4, and it talks about speaking the truth in love. And speaking in the truth in love so people can be built up in Christ. And that's the thing is, hey, it's not just give someone hard truth. It's speaking truth in love. How do we know it's love? Because it's going to ultimately point them to Christ. Because some people run around, they hear these things and they think, oh, okay, now I got a license to kill. Now I have a license to go and put everybody in their place and let them know what I think of them. You didn't do this right. You didn't do this right. You could have done better here. No, that's not what it's about. The context is the love of Christ, and it's interesting to see how Christ corrects his disciples. He does it. You can go and read all the passages. You want to know the principles? Just see how he corrects Peter. Just see how he corrects James and John. Just see how he corrects. And in the beginning, he starts very gentle, okay, until he gets to the Pharisees who are leading people astray, and then the volume increases when there's been a consistent pattern of people who are insistent on leading people away because of selfish ambition, and the volume gets louder. All right. Thank you, Matt. So just a quick time check. It's 9 p.m., um, but we still have uh, some more questions here. So for the next questions, you don't have to answer, like, all three of you, so any one of you can answer uh, for the interest of time. Um, so... Can someone commit suicide as a genuine believer with the hope of salvation? Any one of you like to have a short answer and a long answer? (laughs) (laughs) It's up to you. (laughs) I think it's important to to maybe go through both. So um, I I think maybe I'd start up, but why why wouldn't someone who committed suicide? um, I, I think the question is getting at, you know, is this person saved if they commit suicide, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so I think I would ask the question, okay, why wouldn't they be saved? Um, and I think with suicide, I think the things that come up are, well, the severity of the sin, right? So we think through that. It's like, okay, if, if it's due to the severity of sin, then we're all in trouble um, because what well, the Apostle Paul's in trouble is look at all the stuff he did. But Christ says, hey, if you've got anger in your heart, you're a murderer. So if it's the severity of sin, and we consider suicide murder, but we look at our own hearts, sure, there's that in there as well. So does the severity of our sin, does that undo 
the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross. No, it doesn't. And then the other thing is um, people will bring up is, well, suicide, there's no chance to, you know, confess and repent from that because it's the last thing, right? Well, you know, if, if that's the case, it's just a timing thing, right? So if, you know, I respond in anger and road rage to someone cutting me off and I get into a car accident at that moment is the work of Christ on the cross, null and void, right? Um, so I think a lot of it, you know, a few weeks ago I taught on, uh, I, I highlighted the difference between eternal security versus assurance of salvation, right? And how they're different, right? If, if Christ saves someone, Christ has saved someone. Um, and there's nothing that we can do. It's like, oh, I sinned, therefore salvation is taken away until I have a chance to confess and repent and then it's given back to me. That's not how the work of Christ is applied to us. Um, so I think that's the shorter answer. I think the longer answer is that suicide does not exist. It's sort of in a vacuum to itself. You know, Those who choose to go down that path, they don't wake up one day and it, it just happens to them. Right? Um, it, it usually comes from a long pattern, history of discouragement, depression, anger, doubt, whatever it may be that has led to that point. And if someone is to say that they have a relationship with Christ uh, and they have the hope that is in Christ, and yet the testimony of their lives is continual not having hope, then that's the question about, okay, assurance of salvation, right? What evidence is there that there actually is hope in this, there's this person's life, right? So I think that's sort of the, the longer consideration, knowing that, yeah, these things don't just happen. It's not just the act itself that comes out of nowhere, but it comes out of a heart that has lost all hope and does not seem to have the hope that Christ is supposed to give someone who trusts in him, right? So that's how I'd respond to that one. Yeah, yeah thank you, Kevin. Um, Pastor Mark and Ted, if is there anything that you want to add there, or are you okay? Yeah, I think Kevin answered well. Um, I think there's a history within the Roman Catholic Church of making a division between ranks of sin. Okay, and there are venial sins and mortal sins. And typically suicide goes into the mortal sin, you know, big ticket item. And because, as Kevin described, the severity of the sin that if someone does not repent before they die, it is a final sin. Okay, we have to think that that is a a tradition. Okay, we do have to say when we go into scripture that scripture does highlight that certain sins have different consequences. Murder is one of them, adultery is another. And sexual sin is put up on a very, very high level as far as damaging consequences here as well as an offense to the Lord. So not all sins are the same as far as their consequences in our lives and in our relationships. They're not all equal, even though there's this Catholic theology that sort of gives this pecking order and points, which we wouldn't agree with. Okay, we we do have to say, hey... We are going to live out the consequences as well as the judgment of the Lord. He is going to weigh our sins. So I think that's worth being mindful of. But at the same time, we have to say, what is the gospel? At the end of the day, you know, Christ died on the cross for our sins, past, present, and future. And his atonement is sufficient 
for his children for the entirety of their sins. Does that give us a license to go out and sin more? No, it does not. Out of gratitude, we want to run to him. And I think, once again, with that issue of suicide, we need to see it within the context of the gospel. But at the same time, I think we have to come in too and say, okay, as men, we do not see the hearts of individuals. We can see patterns, we can see trends, but it is for God to judge the state of a soul and whether there is genuine repentance and faith in Christ and whether there is true salvation from the hand of God or not. But that works two ways. That works on, hey, if someone commits suicide, can I be absolutely sure they weren't saved? No. I don't know what they said, those final moments as they were leaving. But on the other hand, I think we also have to say, for people who make conjectures, that because of some profession of faith that happened many years earlier, they're also not in a situation to come and say, well, I know this person was saved. And I think the peace that comes in these situations comes by going to the Lord and trusting in his sovereignty over a soul and his right to make right decisions rather than our best guesses and conjectures. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Mark and Kevin. Um, um, Ted, is there anything that you want to... Okay, good. Um, How can you honor your parents as a single son or daughter and as a married couple? How can you honor your parents as a single person or as a married couple? I know our time is short. I think the perfect example is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, I know I sound like a broken record, right? But whatever. It's there over and over and over again. And it's beautiful and it's so helpful. When you see how Jesus dealt with his family every step of the way, On the cross, he's dying. He looks to one of his disciples and he basically hands off the care of his mother who is now without, who is now a widow and without Christ to be cared for. He looks out for her. He takes care of her genuine need while he is dying. And yet earlier, his mother and his family members show up and people come to him while he's in ministry and they say, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. Hey, time out. And he says, who are my mother? Who, who's my family? Those who do the will of my father. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Jesus, if you look, loves, honors, and cares. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. But at the same time, he does not conform to Israeli or ancient Near East traditions and fear of man in what he has to do in an honor-shame-based culture. And I think as Asians, that's where we struggle because we've grown up in honor-shame culture and the definition of what honoring our parents is is different than what is in Scripture. And so the help to that where Christ will really set you free is as you walk through and you read his interaction with his family members, he really shows what God means in the law by honoring your parents. And it doesn't mean obey. Okay, thank you, Pastor Mark. I have last two questions, but before I ask that, does anyone from the audience, um, do you guys have any questions? 
you could uh, raise your hand and you know just let us know. Anyone? Don't be shy. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Oh yeah. Um, could you repeat that? Sorry. What are some practical ways to build humility? Right, the character. Yeah, the character of humility. You know, yeah. Just off the top of my head, uh, Philippians comes to mind um, to consider the character of Christ, you know, who, um, though he was uh, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant. Um, so considering Christ's example is definitely one thing that just immediately comes top of mind. I think also um, just in- inviting correction into your own life. Um, will we'll frequently accomplish that purpose as well. You know, the people who know you well, if you want to grow in the Lord, they'll ask like, hey, you know, how, how do you see my life? How do you see me pursuing? Are there any blind spots? Those types of things and be prepared for the answer. Um, so I think those are just top of, top of my head ways that you can really pursue and cultivate humility. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I think prayer too, you know, humility, you can, prayer go hand in hand, right? It's it's an expression of your dependence on the Lord, and so if you're not praying, I, I would say we're prideful. You know, if the church is not praying, we're a prideful church, right? So, I think cultivating a healthy habit of prayer. Complementing these two men, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. So it, it's about being faithful and obedient, even at your own expense. If you are following Christ and you're obeying His word. He's going to bring a ton of humility your way because you can't do it, right? And so as men move forward by faith in ministry, as they hear Christ calling and they're obedient, uh, I recall one of the first times I had to do church discipline. I basically saw a younger man publicly dishonor, okay, my mother at a Bible study when she asked a question. It's like, whoa, what do you do? And this is, I was an older person at the time. I was serving under a younger person, but because he went to seminary, he was the leader of the Bible study. What do you do? And so the question for me is, am I going to obey Christ? Or am I just going to say whatever, right? And so then I tried to carry out Matthew 18 and went to the person as gently as I could and said, hey, I just want to, follow up on that interaction, you know, and what did you think of that? Just wide open, no judgment, whatever. I mean, it was in a public place in front of other people. It was, it was ugly. Okay. And, you know, more or less, he got very uncomfortable with it and sort of more or less shut it down right there and then. Okay. And, you know, my whole participation in that Bible study was at risk. What was he going to do? Where are things going to happen? For me to be obedient to Christ in that situation, and I'm not saying how I handle it perfectly, but to say, okay, this is what Christ calls me to do. I got to reach out to a brother, see what happened, just try and understand, try and love and pursue unity and be open to whatever's going to come my way, which afterwards wasn't particularly pleasant. 
Okay, if, if you really are going to obey Christ, it is going to be a joy, but he is going to bring things your way that are going to be hard to do where you're going to have to make a choice. I'm going to hang on to my pride or I'm going to do what he asks. And you cannot follow Jesus without growing in humility, and that's his gift to you. All right, well said. Thank you. Does anyone have any question? Okay, um, last two questions. What are some practical steps to take or resources to use when, search, when searching what the Bible says about a particular topic? Uh, example, uh, career change, dating, parenting, etc. What are some practical steps to take or resources to use when searching what the Bible says about a particular topic, like career change, dating, parenting, etc. Um, I'll just quickly um, chime in with what we've mentioned several times already um, in this meeting, and um, I also had a chance to speak with the the collegians a few Fridays ago and mentioned the same things. Like the Lord has provided people in the church. Um, discipleship group leaders that I think most of us here are have and are a part of those groups they're a resource you know so go to them and ask them not to say that you don't go to scripture but you know that that is one avenue of really understanding how someone has likely walked these things and wrestled with these things before and brought scripture to bear on those things and can help you in those ways yeah, thank you for bringing it up, um, uh, bringing it back to discipleship. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I think sometimes we can, and I've been guilty of this, of treating the Bible like a dictionary or encyclopedia and just proof texting, looking for that one verse that's going to tell me what to do, you know, with these decisions. But really, you know, seeing that God has given us his entire word from beginning end to end to provide that wisdom. And so as we grow in our understanding and knowledge and depth of his word, it really informs all our decisions. So um, this kind of highlights, right, the fact that, you know, to make those big decisions in life, like who to date, you know, when to have children, what job to take, you really have to be abiding in his word such that when those decisions come up, the Lord's going to provide through his spirit and and the the fact that the word's been abiding in you, the way the, the right decisions that's going to most honor Christ, as opposed to, oh my goodness, I haven't been in the Word for six months, and I have to make this major decision, and you flip through the Bible and try to find the answer. That's not the way it works. You know, God has prescribed His Word that we might walk in it on a daily basis, and that it bides in us, such that as these unexpected decisions come up, something that you totally, from left field, and you just have to make a, a decision in the moment, you trust the Spirit to work in the word that's abiding in you to, to make those decisions. So I think rather than seeing the word as, well, I, I need to look at the word as ways that I can fix my problems. No, it's, it's the word that's alive in us, right? As it's richly dwelling in us, that as we walk in it, you know, these decisions that come up, the Lord provides, you know, and he's going to bring to mind those things that we've been meditating on, memorizing, you know, obe- obeying and uh, those sorts of things. And so, yeah, I, I think I think we under we minimize the importance of doing that 
and, and because we don't necessarily see the immediate fruit, we sort of say, well, it's okay. But really, it's, it's, it's really God's provision for us, you know, that that's going to provide the wisdom for those big decisions. Yeah. Um, before there were Christian public publishing houses with all these books, you know, the Lord provided the Holy Spirit in the local church. And, and I don't say that sarcastically. I think we have a God who hears, who knows our requests before we speak them, and has already appointed a provision for us. And so I think one thing is pray, 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 pray. Because sometimes even if you do have a resource, if your heart isn't prepared, and this is some of the things that Kevin and Ted are referring to, you're not going to see it, even if it's right before you. So I think you can draw in the members of your discipleship group to say, hey, I've got this issue. I have to take care of this, or I have to handle this, or I'm not sure about this. Uh, And I could really use your prayer in this area, and let's pray with faith and thanksgiving, knowing that the Lord is going to make things clear because we belong to him, we're his child, and hey, you know how we take care of our children. He's going to take care of his children too. So I think prayer is significant. I think uh, before there were Christian publishing houses, there was the church. And so I, I think part of the issue of going to discipleship group leaders and people who have been through it before, if uh, it's helpful to go to them because they have probably wrestled through these things, jobs, adoption of kids, families, family planning, all of these different things. And in all likelihood, they've wrestled. There's no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. And they will, as a result of that, probably have gone through certain resources. And so when I get together with other folks, I will typically ask, okay, when you went through this, what was the resource or the handful of resources that you found helpful? And typically, Rick Holland did this for me with dating. You know, they've been through, they've seen it. They know 80% of it is whatever, but there are one or two gems that they have that will be of help. And then here's a big cheat sheet, okay? The biblical counseling world, their publishers, they have one for men and one for women uh, where they've got a list like an index of all these different topics, and they have all the scripture references, not all, but they have the whole list of different scripture references which address those different areas. And as you grow as a, a biblical counselor, those are resources that are helpful for you to have on your uh, desk so that you can just pull it out and look very quickly. Abortion, where do I look? Having children, where do I look? And then you can read through all the scriptures that deal with that. But one of the simple things that you can do as well, let's say you're planning on thinking about having a family, okay? Or you're thinking about dating, which is about marriage. All you can need to do is go in your ESV and type in marriage or type in family or type in children and just take the time to read every scripture and the context around it. Take some time, but you'll have a really big picture of what to do with that. There are also a couple of resources, Dr. Street and his wife, Janie. Dr. Street has a book on common problems for guys, and they go through a lot of different things, and Janie has one for women, and both of those resources uh, are really helpful because they address a lot of the common problems, and there are chapters that are done in all of those. Um, 
Zach, I want to go back to the question you asked about humility. It's still on my mind. One of the ways to develop humility is to serve in an area in the church that is not an area of your natural giftedness. We tend to serve where we're gifted, and it allows us to feel strong. Um, I'm a terrible singer, okay? So I'm not going to start leading the praise team. But nonetheless, you know, I've heard this, you know, where pastors will ask people who come in not to serve in their area of giftedness because they want the church to know them for Christ and not their giftedness, okay? So when you leverage, selfish ambition will always leverage the area you're strong. And Jesus talks about when you have a meal, invite people who could never invite you back, the handicapped, the poor, the disabled, right? Because we're just exemplifying what Christ has done for us. We weren't worthy and he loved us. So I think one of the areas to develop humility is to serve in an area that's not your area of natural giftedness and a place that people won't see. Thank you, guys. Um, Yeah, this is really helpful. Um, So last question. What has been an encouragement for you uh, in in the life of the church, as Christ builds up, you know, uh, our church? What has been an encouragement for you in the life of our church as Christ builds up um, our church? Um, Just very generally, but, you know, not to diminish it, you know, when people hear the word of God and you see the tangible changes that have happened in their lives, whether it be they hear the word in uh, council, discipleship groups, or whether they hear the word on a Sunday or in the Logos, when folks hear the word and it's not just, oh, that was interesting, let me, you know, think about that, no, that was, that was really good, but ways that you can tangibly see, you know, the, the word has taken root and their lives are different now because of the word that they heard. That's, that's what's encouraging. Yeah, same thing. You know, the Apostle John says, there's no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And so, yeah, walking in the truth, meaning you're not just listening to the truth, hearing it out the other year, but you're walking in it, you're obeying it by faith in Christ, and you're doing it because of Christ, not because of you want to impress other people or, or any other external reason. It's because of Christ that you're obeying and walking in his truth. And that's always an encouragement to see. Yeah, it, it's the same. I, I think <clears throat> you look at Jesus and how he loves his sheep and his care for them. And you see the Apostle Paul and his delight in the life of Timothy. Not that Timothy's life was easy. I think something that Julie and I have shared recently about how merciful and gracious the Lord has been to us is, you know over the last few months, just giving us glimpses into lives of people in our church to see the presence of the Lord through fruit, to see people in places that they would not have chosen to be, in ministries that they wouldn't have chosen to be, in circumstances they would not have chosen to be, but that's where the Lord has brought them. And to see them grow and become more Christ-like and to be, see them set free from their past um, and to see people mature and become more Christ-like, uh, you know, it's an overwhelming joy to see that. It's an encouragement. We get to see it. Um, 
And, you know, it just is. It's a testimony that Christ is risen from the grave. His spirit is present. And that the life of a saint and the life of a church is not based on our efforts or our giftedness, but it's a supernatural work of the Lord. So that's been our encouragement. See you all. All right. Thank you, man. Let's give a round of applause for our elders. Thank you, Pastor Mark, Ted, and Kevin. Um, you know, Q&A, our Q&A for tonight ends, but it doesn't mean, you know, you cannot ask them questions even after this session. So, um, yeah, our elders are here to shepherd you guys if you have any other questions. Um, so with that said, um, before I close us in prayer, I just want to give the announcements. Uh, Logos, uh, next week will be the share and prayer time, so please be on the lookout uh, for your discipleship group leaders, um, email when and where you'll, you're going to meet. Um, that's going to be the last, uh, sem- for the semester for Logos, the last thing for next week, the share and prayer. But Logos does not end. We will still have summer Logos. Um, you know, we will have large group g- gatherings once a month in June, July, and August. And we'll uh, announce more, uh, give more details of um, what the topics will be. Uh, summer book club. We will start taking signups for the uh, book club starting tomorrow. Um, please be on the lookout for an email. We'll send a link uh, to your discipleship group leaders. And um, our book will be uh, Sinclair Ferguson's uh, Devoted to Church, Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. And what's the third one, Pastor Mark? Amazing Grace, right? Yeah, Eric Metaxas' Amazing Grace. Can yes. you just do a quick blurb to explain what book club is because some of the folks... Oh, yeah. So, summer book issue. club, yeah. So, the, the goal of the summer book club is that uh, for, like, twice a month that you will be able to gather with, you know, with brothers and sisters, not necessarily within your same Logos groups, but it is to facilitate uh, fe- to be in fellowship with uh, your brothers and sisters and also to be just to be in the Word and prayer. And I think we'll also uh, include Acts, right, as part of the reading uh, plan there. So and This year will be a little bit different. We wanted to provide something that's a little more fluid for you and to just to provide an opportunity to gather in small groups and still be together and grow in Christ, maybe a little less formal setting. But uh, this year we'll have... Three books that you can choose from. They're recommendations, okay? And so with your group, you can pick whichever book. One is a biography on William Wilberforce and the fight against slavery and about his conversion and his relationship with John Newton. Uh, One is a biblical counseling book dealing with the fear of man when God is big. No, when God is small. And when people are big and God is small. I got that backwards. And uh, then one is a little bit more, not too much, but theological, devotional, which is Sinclair Ferguson's book about the love for the local church. Okay. Thank you, uh, Pastor Mark, for expounding that. Um, uh, two more announcements. Uh, Adorn Ladies uh, Tea and Equipping. Uh, there will be a Ladies Tea and Equipping event on Saturday, May 20th from 2 to 4. The theme is Women of the Word and Prayer. The event is open to all ladies, not just moms. Please RSVP by this Wednesday. Oh, that's today, May 10th on the Facebook event. Or you can talk to Andrea or uh, Eliza. And lastly, uh, membership interest. If you are interested in becoming a member, 
Um, this is uh, this Sunday, right? This Sunday, right? Uh, our last last of four membership classes will be this Sunday. Collegians and current members who would like a refresher on church membership are also invited to attend. So please RSVP if you plan to attend using the form. Well, we don't have any form, but you could email membership at lbcsj.com. And uh, yeah, that's it. Oh, I'll close us in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for you are good and faithful that we are not alone, that you have given your spirit and your word uh, to be our guide, to be our ally. Lord, please help us to see Christ, to see, to embrace the gospel in our lives and to really live out the gospel, to walk in the light for your glory. Lord, we pray that uh, may you just continue to renew our minds, uh, not to be conformed by the world, Lord, but to be continue to re be renewed uh, in our minds by your word so that we would know your perfect, acceptable, um, and great will. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed your desires, your will, your plans through your word. And we can trust in you, that we can trust in you with all of our hearts and not to lean on our own understanding. Please help us, Lord, in our walk for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.